If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to 1 Samuel 29. 1 Samuel chapter 29. As Pastor Trent pointed out last week, ever since Genesis 3.15, God's plan has significantly related to a promised son, a redeemer to come, a ruler. God told Eve that in her seed or in her offspring would come the defeat of the serpent and sin. Ultimately, this promised seed, this promised son, this redeemer and ruler would be Jesus. But between Genesis 3.15 and Jesus' birth in the New Testament, that line from Eve had to be propagated. And in that sense, so much of the Old Testament has to do with offspring and promised sons. So you have the seed of Abraham being talked about in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And we're told that a ruler will come from Judah in Genesis 49. On and on it goes. Last week we finished a brief study in the book of Ruth. And how did that story end? With a son. A son was born to Ruth. She came to Bethlehem, a widow and a foreigner, but she was redeemed by Boaz, who took her as his wife and gave her a son, a son named Obed. Obed is no one particularly special in the Bible, uh, if for no other reason. There's no story about Obed anywhere in the Bible except his birth. And yet remarkably big and lofty things are said about this Obed at his birth. If you were with us last week, you read Ruth 4, verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Now this redeemer referring to Obed the son. And may his name be renowned in Israel. A renowned redeemer? What did he do? Why was he so special? Every other mention of Obed in the Bible is when he's crammed into a genealogy. You know, you got sort of the short end of the stick in Bible references if you're just in genealogies. No good stories. But those genealogies matter, don't they? That's exactly how the book of Ruth ends, uh, with a genealogy. And in that ge genealogy, we discover how Obed is special in the grand scope of God's plan, not because of what he did, but because of who he had. The last verse. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Obed was David, King David's grandpa. It's not accidental or coincidental that the next book in our Bibles from Ruth is, say it, 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel is a story about David, ultimately. It's really a story about Israel's first kings. There's first Saul, and then there's David. Saul was the king of the people's initiative, a king like the nation's. But David was a man of God's own choosing, a man after God's own heart. First and second Samuel make up a story of God leading his people in righteousness, God ruling in the midst of his people in the promised land. 
It's a story about God providing a redeemer of sorts, a son from Bethlehem, a ruler from Judah. But it's a long and twisty road getting from Saul to David, isn't it? Do you remember that? It's back seven weeks ago that we were last in 1 Samuel. So today we return to our series in 1 Samuel. We had uh, some time off for Well, for Easter Sunday, and then we had a guest speaker in, Randy Stinson, and then we spent a couple of weeks in the book of Ruth around Mother's Day. Now we come back to 1 Samuel to see these final scenes before David, the Lord's true anointed, takes his throne in 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 29. It's a chapter that picks up the story from 1 Samuel 27. It might frustrate us today because we're used to a certain style of history that is stringently, chronologically ordered. Uh, But the Bible history doesn't always do that, and especially in 1 Samuel. They'll they'll put certain stories together in order to make a point or show a contrast. And so you you get some irregularity in the chronology from 1 Samuel 27 into 28 and 29. But the the story of 1 Samuel 27 is what flows into 1 Samuel 29. So because, even though we studied 1 Samuel 27 back several weeks ago, uh, because 27 and 29 go together, we need to begin with some review of that chapter. I said turn to 1 Samuel 29. You might want to instead turn to 1 Samuel 27. We're going to see four things about David today, and the first is a review of chapter 27. It's this, David puts his trust in Philistines. Chapter 27, verse 1, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines, the enemies. And Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. David puts his trust in Philistines here. On the one hand, David's plan worked. Saul did give up the chase. Saul wasn't about to go into Philistine country even to hunt down his most wanted man, David. On the other hand, this was quite risky for David to do. Think of how this looks back home. How does it look to those who you will one day rule If they'll take you back, you side with the enemy? We saw seven weeks ago when we looked at this chapter that David's plan cost him something morally. He had to lie to the king, Achish, that he was killing Israelites for the Philistine king. He wasn't there as a quiet farmer, but a mercenary. Coming from chapter 26, you didn't see this coming. At the end of chapter 26... Well, really, even into chapter 25, twice between those two chapters, David had the opportunity to kill Saul, and instead he preached to Saul. Remember that? His many sermons are loaded with confidence in God. 
loaded with righteous resolve, loaded with belief in God's promises about David's future reign as king. And he recounts those promises to Saul. So as we talked about several weeks ago, it's an unexpected shift when you get to chapter 27 and David flees the Philistines certain that Saul will one day kill him. You can't blame him for being skeptical about Saul's newfound support of David at the end of chapter 26. Of course, Saul's a flip-flopper. But David fleeing to the Philistines is very un-David-like. It's very ungodly. It's very pessimistic. I shall surely perish by the hand of Saul. He's certain. There's nothing better for me. Literally, it's there is no good for me here. And at the risk of redundancy, we said seven weeks ago, this kind of thinking is contrary to God's promises which have been spoken by the prophet and by David's best friend, Jonathan. This kind of thinking is contrary to the evidence. Time and time and time again, David has been rescued, miraculously so at times. It's contrary to the recent assurances that have been spoken to David by those around him, such as Abigail in chapter 25 and and Saul's own words in chapter 24 and 26. It's contrary to David's own testimony in these chapters. He puts his trust in Philistines. That's a deliberate and important phrase, he puts his trust in. Because you see it in the Bible. Things we're not supposed to put our trust in, and the one we are to put our trust in. So in Psalm 118, we read, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. In Psalm 146, put not your trust in princes, it says. Isaiah 31, they're warned, woe to those who go down to Egypt. Or we could say, woe to those who go down to Philistia for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they're very strong. David said as he stood before the nine-foot-tall Goliath, It's not by might, it's not by sword or spear. The battle is the Lord's. It's a faithless evil. It's a wicked idolatry to trust in sword or chariot or horse and not the Lord. How much worse to put your trust in not an an amoral thing, like a sword or a chariot, but to put your trust in a Philistine king. This is one of those examples where David points ahead to Jesus, not with similarity, but with contrast. There are two ways Old Testament figures point ahead to the ultimate one to come, the son, the redeemer, the ruler. Sometimes they show us similarities with Jesus, and sometimes they point to Jesus by giving us contrast. The promised ones of old, like David, they hinted at something of what the true promised son would be, righteous and and courageous and, and bold and walking with the Lord. But because they weren't the true and final and ultimate promised one, God was kind to show his people their clay feet. They were sinners. 
So David is the promised one as far as 1 Samuel is concerned. But, but the message is loud and clear already. You better have a greater hope than David. He'll run down to Philistia if he has to. He's often a great example. But what you'll see in 2 Samuel, there's this whole thing with Bathsheba. And David practically violates all ten of the Ten Commandments as he tries to cover up his sin. And thus, his sins, like any Old Testament figures, their instruction and their warning to us. David here shows us very clearly, don't put your trust in Philistines. He shows us by negative example. And that negative example also points us to a better king than this one, an ultimate king who never once doubted God, not for a second. Back to the story. As we turn to chapter 28, we read of a new wrinkle in David's Philistine plan. Verse 1 says, In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. In Achish, the king said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army against Israel. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. Now David had just told Saul on two different occasions that David would not put out his, his hand against Saul, the king. He said that either God will take Saul out or the enemy will take Saul out, but David would not take the kingdom by force. But now, because he's taken cover in Philistine land... And the king is going to fight the Philistines. David's in a tremendous pickle. Achish says, hey, David, let's go kill Israelites. You got a problem with that? What will happen? Will David have to admit to Achish that the last 16 months have just been a lie, a sham, a scheme, that Achish has been duped? by David. And how's that going to go if David admits that to Achish? Or will David recant of those promises that he spoke before to Saul and, and then go and fight against Saul? Will David and his men really draw swords against his own people whom the Lord called him to shepherd? That's unthinkable. David first puts his trust in Philistines. But secondly, as we move on to new material today, David is protected from the unthinkable. He's protected from the unthinkable. This is all of chapter 29. It's really just a conversation between a few different people. It's sort of slow going in a sense for 11 verses. It's drawn out. But let's read it all together. Let's read chapter 29 and see how David is protected from the unthinkable. It says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commander of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who's been with me now for days and years? 
And since he has and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. The commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place which, with which you've assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. How could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David? of whom they sing to one another in dances. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This chapter, like so many in 1 Samuel, is chalked full of irony. The Philistine commanders are, are probably spot on here. I imagine this is exactly what David would have done had the Lord not intervened. He would have marched with the Philistines, and at some given time, he would have given a, a sign to his men, and they would have fought Philistines right there. Oh, and they would have had a great opportunity to do so, right? To be in the camp with the Philistines. He certainly wouldn't have fought his own people. David has a declension here. He declines here, but I don't think it goes that far. Then again, the king here is quite gullible. He doesn't realize what's going on, does he? He doesn't realize what David would do. The commanders are the ones that are who are understanding David better than even the king. And yet the king spoke better than he knew. Everything he said about David in this chapter was true. Three times Achish affirms David's righteousness. Three times he declares him innocent. Really, if anyone is the dim-witted one of this chapter, it seems as though it's our brother and friend David. You see that in verse 8? David protests, but what have I done? He said that back when his brother said, what are you doing here? That We're doing a war with the Philistines, and you brought sandwiches. What are you doing here? He said, what have I done? He says it again here, what have I done? He's almost protesting his release. He's almost sabotaging God's rescue and God's protection. But God, nevertheless, is using Philistine commanders and a Philistine king to rescue David from this pickle. God is the one protecting his man from the unthinkable. God saves in spite of David, you could say, 
God saves David from himself. David can't do anything but go back and not fight. Now, you might have noticed as I read 1 Samuel 29, there's no mention of God doing anything. I keep saying God's the one who's protecting him from the unthinkable. But there's almost no mention of God in this chapter. And yet it doesn't need to mention God for us to know who it is that's orchestrating things behind the scenes. Just like in the book of Ruth, when it says with a wink and a smile, it just happened to be Boaz's field where Ruth had gone picking. Just happened to be. But we know it wasn't happenstance. It's God's sovereignty, his providence, his provision. And so it is with David in 1 Samuel 29. This was no blind luck. This wasn't just a close one. This was God protecting his man. And the fact that 1 Samuel 29 describes those events without mentioning God orchestrating those events should remind us that God usually works like this. He works behind the scenes. He works in unseen ways. He works in unforeseen ways. He works perfectly when we know it's perfect and when we don't. He works in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. Those clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So wrote William Cooper a couple hundred years ago. God was moving his plan along in 1 Samuel 29. He was fulfilling his promises. And we should remember that in the grand scheme of things of a promised son, right? Genesis 3.15, a son's going to come and he's going to rule and he's going to to conquer over sin and Satan. And and David is a, a reflection of that. He's going to be. He's the promised one. Eventually through David, we get to Jesus. And if you don't have David protected here in 1 Samuel 29, what comes of the whole Bible? Where does it unravel? How bad does it get? Not that we need David, but we need God who moves his plan along and brings about his anointed, ascending his throne. And he works similarly for us. So we should watch the... The signs of providence, you could say. We we should watch the circumstances of our lives knowing there's a sovereign, good, and wise God behind those circumstances. We should note God's providential work. We should note that it is mysterious. 
And we should thank him for him and his ways. But all that doesn't mean that it's just happy and easy. This isn't a a spiritual lesson in how to go from good to great, like the leadership book says. That's not always happy or easy for the Christian and not for David, as we see as we turn to chapter 30. Now, the third thing about David is David faces multiplied miseries. Yes, he's protected from the unthinkable, but he still faces multiplied miseries. For one, he's sent out. He's eventually going to be sent out of his temporary solace in Philistine country. But on top of all that, look at verse 1 of chapter 30. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites, not the Philistines, the Amalekites had made a raid against Negeb. And against Ziklag. They'd overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. David was protected from the unthinkable of having to slay his own people. And yet as he's freed from that, that trial, he faces something far greater in a sense, something more personal at least. It's sort of a out of the frying pan and into the fryer kind of moment. Can you imagine? A city just raised to the ground. All possessions gone. All women and children taken. Not spared, you might not think it's such a bad thing, they're just taken. At least they're spared, you might have said as I read that. But, but they're taken, likely to be taken into slavery or sold into slavery. So David and his men raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. In many ways, David's men were right to blame him. He was responsible for bringing them to Philistia. He was the one leading the raids away from home. Of course, they weren't right to want to stone him. But that just adds to David's misery here. That just shows us what a low, low, low point this is. It's bad enough that all is gone. David's own men contemplate killing him. They were bitter in soul, it says. And hence, David was greatly distressed because of all this. This should remind us that sin has consequences. Galatians talks about this. Whatever you sow, that will you also reap. Sin has consequences. Sometimes delayed consequences. Sometimes multiplied consequences. Sometimes consequences which affect others, as it did here. 
But it's not just David's sin of doubt and fleeing to, to Philistine land that bore these painful con consequences. Someone else's sin is related to this attack by Amalekites. Amalekites. The group of people that God said to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, go in and wipe them out. Their wickedness is just too much. The Amalekites were the first to attack Israel back in Exodus 17, the first of their enemies. And in 1 Samuel 15, God said, be done with them. I want to judge them. You're going to be my imperfect instrument to bring about their destruction. But Saul didn't, did he? And that was the final straw. That's when the prophet spoke its final judgment. It was repeated in in 1 Samuel 28, there the prophet from the grave told Saul, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day of judgment and coming death. So it's Saul's failure to fully obey God in 1 Samuel 15 that leads to having Amalekites still around and causing havoc and leads to all this Grief and difficulty for David and his men. Now, we won't get to see all of the outcomes where the story goes from here this week, but we see one immediate outcome. This is the fourth thing. David is strengthened in his Lord. Remember how the, remember where we stopped in verse six? They're bitter in soul. David's greatly distressed. They've wept so long they have no strength to weep anymore. The only thing they can muster up the strength to do, at least to consider, is stoning David. Multiplied miseries. But David is strengthened in his Lord. Look at the last sentence of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now that last sentence of verse 6 is not just an important turn for this one verse, but it's an important turn in the broader story of 1 Samuel. Remember chapter 27, verse 1, in David's doubt? Remember what David said, Surely I will die. Forget the Lord's past protections. Surely there's nothing good for me left in this promised land. Well, that was a big turn of events heading south. And there's no indication that things went, dare we say, north until here. From chapter 27 to chapter 30, verse 6, there's almost no mention of God by David. There's very little to no mention of God in these chapters. That's not David-like, is it? We don't have any psalms that we know of that were written uh, along the time of these chapters of 27 and 29 with David's decline. You've got some darker days in David's life, like 1 Samuel 21, where he acted all crazy to get out of, to get out of Gath, to get out of Achish and his, his clutches. And there David wrote a psalm, remember that? He wrote Psalm 34 as a celebration of God's rescuing through the means of David feigning insanity to get out of Philistine land. 
We don't have any of those kind of psalms in these chapters here. We're right to think that these are dark spiritual days for David. But what a turn. What a turn. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Did you notice that a lot of these, um, a lot of the parts of the story are unpacked at great detail? So, Achish and the Philistine commanders, and then Achish talking to David. We get a whole chapter on that. And here in verse 6, we get David at the greatest point of sorrow. And then in the same verse, the turn. Not about you, but here's where I want to spread that apart a little bit. I'd like some breathing room here. I wish the Lord would have given us more description about what he did and how this happened and when the turn was made and what it looked like and what he said to the Lord and how he felt after and all that. And it doesn't give us that. Do you know why? Because it wants to show us this turn and the contrast. It wants to quickly show us that David was at the brink. He was at the edge of despair. It couldn't get any worse, so it seemed. He was about to be stoned by his own men. Everyone had grieved. They had wept so long they could weep no more. They were ready to kill him. And that's all he had. If you don't have family, if you don't have stuff, You don't have land, at least you had men, but now the men are turning against you. They used to be bitter at Saul, and they fled to David, now they're bitter at David. But then, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So what does it mean that he strengthened himself in the Lord? We we may wish to have a fuller description, but we're not given one. But that doesn't mean we don't know what it means. What does it mean to return to the Lord? What does that look like? What does it mean to repent? Well, it's not just an admission of wrong. It's not just recognizing what you did was wrong, where you've been is wrong. It's more than that. It's not just the re-acceptance of forgiveness. It involves God. It involves sorrow. Before there's gladness. Repentance means turning. Hating that thing that we're sorrowful about. In David's case, his repentance didn't just stop at repentance, but it led to restoration and confidence. And he was strengthened in the Lord. No doubt that had to relate to God's promises. That's how Jonathan strengthened David in the Lord back in chapter 23. He reminded David of God's promises. That's how we're strengthening the Lord. We remember. That's what David failed to remember back in chapter 27, verse 1, when he began to doubt and then fled to Philistine land. He failed to remember God's promises. You can almost think of this verse here where David strengthened the Lord as sort of the reverse of chapter 27, verse 1. Back then, he doubted and he listened to his doubts rather than preached to himself. He said to himself, there is nothing good for me here and surely Saul will get me in the end. He ignored God's promises. He ignored the testimony of those around him as he entered into that doubt in chapter 27. 
He ignored God's past faithfulnesses, if we can use that word. God's past miraculous protection. But then here, there's a turn. He flips all those upside down. He remembers God's past faithfulness, no doubt. He remembers how God has miraculously protected and provided. He, he remembers God's promises to do him good and to give him the throne for the good of the people. And thus he was strengthened in the Lord his God. This is both something that David did and also something that God did for him or in him. God grants repentance and yet we have a responsibility to repent, to turn, to believe and trust, to confess our sins and flee to him. God gave this to David, just like Hannah foretold. Remember Hannah's prayer and how that's sort of a, a key to unlocking the book of 1 Samuel? Well, back in chapter 2, two verse 10, Hannah said, The Lord will give strength to his king, his true king, not Saul. But David, he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Why? Because he's his. Notice that it's personal. David strengthens himself in the Lord, his God. God isn't this entity to tap into or this being to behave in front of in order that he not make it too hard on you. It's personal. And what a contrast all this is with Saul in chapter 28. Remember chapter 28, Saul sought the Lord. There's no prophet for him. And so he goes to a witch for her to conjure up the dead prophet to hear from the Lord. And he does, but he hears judgment. You're going to die tomorrow. And what happened then? David, I'm sorry, Saul just walked away. That's what happened. In chapter 28, look at the last verse. The witch put before Saul food and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. He just walked away. There's nothing really good that can come for Saul. But by contrast, David was also at that, that moment, that brink, that hardest moment, that lowest low. And he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We should all ask ourselves this morning, when I'm at the lowest point, whether in a trial or in my own sin, when I'm at my lowest point, what happens next? You go like Saul, eat your meal, and head out. What else are you going to do? Or, like David, strengthen yourself in the Lord. It leads to action for David. Comfort, yes, restoration, indeed, but also to action. Look at verse 7. He seeks God. David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod, the garment that you wear when you hear from the Lord. And so Abiathar bought, brought the ephod to David and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band, these Amalekites? Shall I overtake them? And God answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. He sought the Lord. He wasn't just strengthening the Lord, but he sought the Lord. And he heard from God. 
Now, there's some interesting parallels between David in these verses and what we read of Jesus in the New Testament. Let me point some of them out. Achish declared David's innocence three times. Pilate also declared Jesus' innocence three times. Both spoke better than they knew. David was rejected by Saul and by Gentile rulers, the Philistines. So too Jesus, rejected by his own and crucified by the Romans. David was cast out. So too Jesus was cast out. But he was cast out willingly and for us. Hebrews 13 tells us he suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. David was rescued by God and rescued from himself, really. Jesus, too, was rescued by God, not rescued from himself, but for us. Rescued completely. Not rescued from death, but rescued through death and resurrection. David was strengthened in and by the Lord. Jesus didn't need strengthening because sin or doubt, but he nevertheless needed strengthening for the task ahead. And he was strengthened in the wilderness. He was strengthened in the garden. He was strengthened completely by his Father through the Spirit for that unthinkable task ahead. Jesus faced infinitely more multiplied miseries than David or anyone else. He faced them for the unthinkable task ahead of going to the cross, not defeating the Amalekites, important as that was in David's time, and for David as the leader of these people. No, Jesus didn't come to defeat the Amalekites or the Philistines or big bad old Saul but came to defeat Satan and sin, just as Genesis 3.15 promised. In the seed of the woman, the serpent's head will be crushed. David sought the Lord through the priest. But Jesus was the true and final priest, and we can seek the Lord through him, the perfect priest's. So Hebrews 4 tells us, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help. In time of need. Hallelujah. What a savior. What a king. What a ruler. Have you been saved by this king? Do you believe he died in your place to bring you to God? Do you believe he can make you holy through his own blood? Do you believe he suffered on your behalf? Not because of his sin but for yours. We pray you would believe today if you haven't. And Christian, we remember his sacrifice. We remember that we're saved. Like David, we have been saved in this 
unseen, unforeseen way, this mysterious thing where behind the scenes a payment was made. A man didn't just die on the cross because evil is in this world and he said some things that troubled them. No, he died in our place to cancel out our debt. We've been saved. And like David, we've been strengthened time and time again. Oh, I know, not perfectly so, not as much as we'd like. But time and time again, he has strengthened you, hasn't he? He strengthened you in his word. He strengthened you by the hand of a Jonathan in the words of an Abigail again and again. Like David, because we have this great high priest, better than the ephod of the Old Testament, we seek him. We seek him. We seek him in his word. We seek for his wisdom and his ways. We seek to know him and to be like him. And hence, we want to see the unseen. We want to see what he is up to and how he's working on our behalf and for his glory. This, simply put, is the Christian life. And this, simply put, is your greatest responsibility and priority tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day. See what he's done. Seek him through his word, through his finished work. Be strengthened in the Lord. When you hit your lowest, will you simply eat a meal and walk away like Saul? Or will you strengthen yourself in the grace of God? Let's pray for his help now. Lord, you have been our help in ages past, and you are our hope for eternity to come. We thank you for how you worked on David's behalf, how you protected your anointed, how even more, Lord, through the ages, the millennia, You have brought about the true anointed, the Savior, our King, our Shepherd, and our joy. Even though we don't now see him, we rejoice in him with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And Lord, we want to grow in our sensitivity to sin. We want to grow in rehearsing your promises. We want to grow in strengthening ourselves in you. We pray for your strength and pray for a resolve in this church to be strong in you, strong in your ways, strong for your glory. May your joy be our strength. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.